Hi, I'm Deborah Lott, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Deborah Lott. She's the author of In Session, A Bond Between Women and Their Therapist. Her latest book is the memoir, Don't Go Crazy Without Me, out now on Redhead and Press. Deborah also teaches creative writing and literature at Antioch University. Deborah Lott, how are you? I'm, I'm well. I'm one of the worried well. How are you, Tony? I'm, I'm a, I love the worried well. Oh, that is perfect. I'm going to say I'm worried well as well. It, there's, there's, a, there's a beauty to that because it kind of, um, it kind of brings us all together. Where like we're all worried. So yes, we're, we are. We are all worried. Yes. Yeah. And so, all right. I, I, now I cannot wait to read the uh, your book about in session the bond between the women and their therapist, which, of course, is twenty years ago. Back when yep. you're writing, back when your writing um, experience was twenty years less than it is now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I know that feeling. It's just it's it's hard to go back to. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, well, and it's a totally different book. It's a research-based book where I interviewed a bunch of women about their experiences in psychotherapy and about transference, where, you know, we carry these feelings from childhood into the therapy room. So it's about transference from women clients' point of view rather than therapists' point of view. Uh, nobody had ever written about it from clients' point of view. It was always therapists, like, own the territory. It's... I love it because I'm the, I'm the guy that sits there. Here's what my therapist usually says to me. Tony, you don't have to worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm always coming in trying to take care of them. And that's me one too. Of me too. I do the same thing. What is that? Me too. I'm like afraid that I'm going to like overwhelm them or horrify them or I don't know what. Yeah, exactly. And um, I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? I mean, is it something inside of us that's... Did, did you have parents you had to take care of? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That might have something to do uh, with it. Did, yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I got to add parents. I felt like I had to be the adult. So now I'm like the child. Now I can't get out of my childhood, but as a child, I felt like I had to be an adult. Isn't it crazy? And that so, brings us to your yeah. memoir, Don't Go Crazy Without Me, which is like one of the most brilliant titles. Oh, thank you. It's only about my hundredth title along the way. Oh, can you tell me, can you tell me the worst title that you had through the Um, I had Tell Me I'm Still Breathing. Oh, I like I tell that. Tell Me You're Still Breathing, because my father used to say to my father used to come into my room in the middle of the night, shine a flashlight in my face and say, tell me you're still breathing. And did not think that would scare me in the least. Because it reassured him, it should reassure me too, right? Isn't it great we can laugh about it now, even though it's yeah. before? <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun. I mean, I realized that it was a little off, even at the time. But, but it was scary. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the other titles I had. Um, I can't think of the others. That was the last one before this one. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, you were getting to a good place. So yeah, I was working on it. I, I don't know if you know that band, The Replacements, but they're one of my favorite bands. And this would be a song on one of their records. It might even be a title of their album if they. <laughs> it would be like The Replacements don't go crazy without me, and it would have. Mm -hmm. It would have. If they had that as their title, it would have been a number one record. But they, 
they didn't have you yet so yeah so that's that's sort of what i i think i i kind of said that to my dad is sort of the, the point of it that he went he went nuts and i was like wait don't go without me but i don't know that i want to be psychotic that, it's sort of that's sort of the turning point of the book where he had a psychotic break yeah and i was kind of like and i was very close to him and i was like well I don't want to be abandoned and I kind of want to be with him, but do I really want to be this crazy? Maybe not. It, and it's hard to see. Uh, uh, I mean, essentially our parents are kind of our spiritual advisors, you know, for so long, yeah. even as we get older. So to see, I, I get this. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm only a, I'm only a psychiatrist from the other side of the chair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, good. But I feel like like our parents are our God model. Yes. And so to see our God model crumble just shatters us. Right. And my father was very much the God model. He was the lay rabbi in our little community temple. So he led services. Um, he had a very powerful, domineering personality. And whatever he said, I believed. And my mother was very, like, meek and, and emotionally reticent. So who am I going to believe, her or him? I believed him about everything. And mostly what he said was that the world was a very scary place. Well, one, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> right? He would have been really right. He would say, see? See? Yeah. It's, but at the same time, I mean, as, as, we're, going, as we're growing up, we kind of have to pretend like, you know, parents have to kind of let their kids go. Um, and you're cocooned. You know, you know they, it's like a protection thing, you know, where you're just like, yeah. don't, open the, don't open the eyes all the way. If, if, if. No, no, don't open the eyes at all. <laughs> but um, he also, I mean, and he also said the world was really fun. I mean, he had a lot of fun, but then he had a lot of fear. Yeah. So I, you know, trying to sort that out. And then my mom said, you know, don't listen to his crazy mishigas. You know, mishigas, the Yiddish word. So she said, don't listen to his crazy mishigas. Well, how am I going to not listen to him? Wait, oh, what is Mishigas? Can you uh, have the definition for our Gentile? Well, Mishigas is craziness, but it's sort of like family, familiar kind of craziness. It's not like really psychotic in the mental hospital craziness. It's like, stop that Mishigas. Oh, I love that word. Okay, I'm in. I'm using that You're word. In? I'm going to give you more Yiddish? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's just There's make a lot of Yiddish in my book. Yeah. My parents would speak it a lot. Yeah. Now and then um oh I was going to I was going to ask you something so terribly important and poignant and then it goes away, right? That's but, okay. It'll come back. <laughs> um Oh, I I I'm sorry, I don't know. Is your dad alive or dead? Dead. Both parents dead, 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 very yeah. dead. Wait, uh, was what it, what is it like writing a memoir about them um after they've passed? probably easier than if they were alive. I mean, my brothers are in there and my brothers are both alive, but they don't read my books. Really? They're, yeah, they have this attitude of like, don't ask, don't tell. It's like, they don't want to know. They, they know they're in there. One brother said, do you think it would upset me to read your book? I said, I, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. He said, better not. Better they don't want to go there? They don't want to go there. Your sister has a book out. It's a memoir. I know. I know. What are you going to do? It's but my... Yeah, my I don't know what my parents, I mean, my dad has been dead a very long time. He died in 1982. Uh-huh. So it's been a long time. 
But he would probably like the attention. He'd be like, oh, yeah, book about me, yeah. Yeah. There, um, the, my dad had a nervous breakdown when I was, um, I think I was 19 years old. And, oh. uh, and oh. when he started to reach his age when he had his breakdown, which was around 36, 37, uh-huh. most of my therapy was about, I was like, I, what, when is my breakdown going to happen? And I, I had such right. a fear of it being in my DNA. And I was so yeah. scared of having a breakdown. I don't know if yeah. you had similar as you started to get to his age. Oh, all the, well, not even as his age, but like all the time, am I going to be psychotic too? And how close am I to psychotic all the time? And, you know, what do I have to do to hang on to my sanity? But yeah, no, I'm, I'm around the age where he died and that's starting to get to me. I'm like, oh, oh. shit. Oh, shit. Right. I, I got a fit. Oh, sorry on. for the profanity. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's okay. Uh, I got a Fitbit on that uh, every once in a while, and I'm like going, I think I have a, I think I'm having an issue. And then I, I was in line at Trader Joe's, and the long line outside now in the new norm. Oh, no. Oh, and I'm no. Just going, why am I out of breath? I'm sitting here out of breath like I'm running a marathon. And I hit my Fitbit, and my heart rate was 120. I'm like, oh, okay, we must breathe. You must be anxious. The worried well. The worried well. That's what doctors call us. Really? Yeah, that's what doctors call hypochondriacs, the worried well. Now, like they you, can't figure out what's wrong with you. Oh, and I, because I'm always, like, even now in the, in the pandemic, I'm even more worried because I'm like, oh, man, I can't have a heart attack. Like, used to be able, like, oh, I can have a heart attack and go to the hospital. <laughs> now I'm like, I can't have a heart attack. They're too busy. That, well, and that was in the newspaper today in the New York Times that people are not going to the ERs with heart attacks. They're staying home because they're more afraid of COVID than having a heart attack alone at a home. And it's not good. Yeah. They're having strokes and heart attacks at home alone. Not to scare you further, but... Yeah, exactly. You're shining a flashlight on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> are you still breathing, Danny? How are you breathing? Another... Yeah, no, I have COVID like three times a day. and. Yes. It's- it's terrible because, you know, I wrote this editorial for the LA Times about how to cope with your fear. And I grew up as a hypochondriac and I know how to deal with it. I don't know how to deal with it. I have a panic attack like three times a day. My yeah. throat is scratchy. My yeah. chest is tight. I'm, you know, I'm like feeling my, do I have a fever? Yeah. It's oh, great. We're both, we're both, we both have PhDs in panic attacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on mine, but you know. It's like, no, I'm really good on my panic attacks. I, and I have panic attacks that last three hours. You're kidding me. No. And the, my, I, I, have, I, mean, I do have a therapist again after not having one for years. And he, you know, they say panic attacks last 20 minutes or panic attacks last half an hour. I have panic attacks that last three hours. That's oh my god! And what do you do in that time? I, I mean, do, what what are some of your tools? Do you have tools that you go to while a panic? I try everything. I hyperventilate. I panic. I pace. I pace. Pacing helps a little. Movement. Yeah. I shake. Yeah. Um, I worked in this book with this psychologist, and she said when you feel panic, you should just like shake all over and go, "I'm so afraid! I'm so afraid! I'm so afraid!" Just get it out of your body. I I don't know. I mean, I did mindfulness training. I was a great meditator, but when I get into that state, it's hard for me to maintain any of that stuff. Right. But I, I try. Yeah, I try to deep breathe. 
I try to reason with myself. No, you're not having COVID. You're just anxious. Right. What do we do? We talk to ourselves, right? Exactly. My, I, I've just been understanding how horrible my self-dialogue is. Uh, where I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, I would not wish this on any of my friends or enemies. Why am I talking like this to myself? So let's hear it. Let's hear a little bit. <laughs> no, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I, I'd rather do full frontal nudity in, a, uh, in, in, the, in, in, ice, in an ice, near an ice sculpture. So it would. <laughs> 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 is it cold? Yeah, it's cold. It's cold. That's why it's like that. Yeah. Uh, no, my self-talk is horrible, too. Just horrible. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, what? and this is what really bugs me about uh, what we're in, um, other than people dying and now we can't eat bats anymore, is that... Uh, <laughs> Did you eat bats? Yeah, yeah. It was like, I, it's like, it was, it's like if you, they, bat is a great weight loss program because, because you just, what happens is you die and then... Do you die if you eat a bat? I didn't uh, know that. I thought they were eating them in one of those countries, I shouldn't say one of those countries, I don't know where, but... It was in China. I think they were eating them in China. They were eating them, right? And yeah. I supposedly that's where it kind of came through. Anyway, but that's a whole other discussion. Yes. What, what, what bothers me, a lot of my friends and a lot of great writers right now, um, are their books are coming out yeah. now in the middle of this when yeah. I mean, you were ready to probably go on press tour to do yeah. so much. And yeah, just, bookstore events, yeah. It's so disheartening. It's, it's I mean, especially yeah, it's the memoir that's so personal. Um, right. It's like, who cares right now? Yeah, at the same time, I think a lot of people are buying a lot more books, which is nice. I don't know. Right. It, it's, it's a good, um, you know, I have a couple of friends, like my friend Alia. She's got a book out called Home Baked. She's been working on it for a decade. Boom. All of everything that, yeah. she, that they had planned, gone. Yeah. It's, Here we are. I got, I got you. You got me. I got you, babe. <laughs> so well, you in my book, so here's my pitch for why my book is good to read right now. Because if you're a hypochondriac, you want to read about a hypochondriacal family and see what happens. Yeah. And I got that. Yeah. I got that. And I got a lot of humor. I mean, it's a, it's a funny take on my family. It's not a sad memoir they're calling it tragic comic i think that's the i think that's the way to go because i like memoirs that are just like oh and then this happened and i'm so sad and you know i was a victim i i think we i think we just especially as a human we're just automatically victims because we're gonna die it's just I, like, I have the exact same okay we're on the same page there yeah exactly it's like we're it's all a problem so let's put some levity to it even though, you know, things, I, I don't know how it worked with you, but, I, you know, like writing comedy is pretty tragic when I'm working on comedy stuff. It's coming from very dark places. Yeah. And then people go, oh, my God, that was so funny. And, I, and, I, and it's wonderful. And I say thank you, but they don't know that how dark. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a fine line, right? It's like a very thin line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, you could, you could read my childhood as kind of tragic. Mm -hmm. But it was very funny. I mean, even while it was happening, there was a lot of humor in my family. My father was very funny. So yeah. he would be having us do some kind of crazy ritual. Like when we would open cans, we had to listen to the air enter the can and make what we called the puff sound or else we would get botulism and die. <laughs> so, 
I, I love the first part of that because that was so playful. It's just like, you have to make the puff sound. <laughs> and then here's the that if you don't. Well, we would gather around him. So my two brothers and I would gather around him in the kitchen. And he had this elaborate ritual of washing the cans and inspecting the can, turning it around and around. And then he would have the can openers, Hannah, we would all lean in and put our ears right up to the can. And then if we heard the puff, it was supposed to be, okay, you're clear, we're good, we can eat it. And then he would eat and eat and eat and eat. And I would think I had botulism for hours. Oh. I would just feel the botulism. I could see the botulism. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it didn't protect me the way it was supposed to. But it was, on the other hand, it was this bonding ritual where yeah. we were all together and it felt like love. So it was very confusing. I think, every, yeah, everything is so confusing, especially as I, I keep just thinking more and more about... Um, the, the children's point of view, like even now during the pandemic, they, mm -hmm. I, I've, this is what I've heard, that um, a lot of them think that we've been through this before. This Oh, this must be some normal thing that happens once every 10 years or so. They, How do they know? Right, because their world is, the time is so compressed. And it's just like, so parents and adults are just like, you'll be all right, kid. And we're just sitting there going, <laughs> we're the worried well. <laughs> yeah, and, and what about the anxious kids? I mean, what's going to happen to the anxious kid? I mean, I was a super anxious kid. Uh -huh. I don't know about you. I mean, you had this promise of an afterlife that was going to be glorious, right? Well, well, there, well, there's that, but at the same time, I was very anxious because uh, it was more pointed at, you might get there. You better be doing this, this, and this. And so I was just... Um, I was always anxious because I wasn't sure. I was pretty sure I wasn't doing anything right. And I would, mm. I thought was, I was going to die at Armageddon anyway. And then even as I got older and I was into my twenties in the Jehovah's witnesses, um, mm -hmm. I thought that, um, well, God's going to kill me at Armageddon, but if I can help other people get through Armageddon, that will be kind of my purpose. And then they can remember me after they get into the, I, that's, that's how my brain was working. So, so some people would just die, die. And that would be it. Well, most, other people well, would get to the afterlife. Was, it was a mass, you know, it was going to be, it was going to be human side, except for the Jehovah's Witnesses. And even the Jehovah's Witnesses, it was like, it's iffy. I mean, you know, if you're thinking <laughs> of a woman the wrong way and Armageddon comes, you better watch out. And, you know, I was, well, is it the wrong way to think about a woman to have lust for her? I don't know. I think that's the right way. Yeah, why, why are these religions always so anti-sex? I, I can never figure that. Why is that the thing that they focus on that gets them so freaked out? Yeah, it blows my mind. I, I, it's, and then they give you violent images. Let's give them violent imagery and tell them no sex. What is the violent imagery of the end of the world? Yeah, yeah. When I was, well, when I was growing up... Um, in you know when i was a little kid in the 70s they were we would have because the jehovah's witnesses were also in concentration camps so the ones who survived would yeah. come and tell us every single like atrocity that happened oh, jesus which is, which is not yeah. uh, you know i mean i i can't believe my dad and my mom sat there with a four-year-old kid and you know up until 10 or 11 listening to all these experiences and then the jehovah's witnesses say this is going to happen any minute. We're getting ready for when it happens to us oh, again. Oh, jeez. You know, How's that I, different from being a Jewish kid and being exposed to the Holocaust imagery 
from yeah. a very young age and being told, you better watch out. The, the Nazis are out there. They're coming back at any moment. Was, oh, so that was similar then? In, very in, similar. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I didn't get the anti-sex messages. My father was very into sex and sexuality. I, I got a lot of pro-sexual expression messages. That's kind of cool. Do you, yeah, do you, so that, yeah. So and you, that's some of what saved me. So after he had a psychotic break and I actually started dating boys and I had a, an experience of my body as being good in sex, I liked that. I was like, okay, it's, it's not just sick and you're not just going to feel pain and all the, you know, all this bad stuff that we had going on all the time with sickness. There's going to be pleasure and good stuff from your body. So you never felt guilty for having sex? Not horribly. Wow. <laughs> Not horribly. A little here and there, a little here and there, because it was in the culture. Yeah. But I also, it was, you know, um, coming on to the late 60s when there was a sexual revolution. Ah, uh, so it's it totally was okay. Amazing. It was okay. It was a path to spiritual enlightenment. Wow. Where did you grow up? I know you're in Los Angeles now. So, so La Crescenta, uh-huh. which was at that time a, a very Gentile community. We were like the only Jews. There were, you know, maybe 200 Jewish families in the, in the whole community. Um, and most of the people around us were born again Christians. Oh, wow. And trying to convert us all the time. I mean, there was one neighbor who would come and stand on our doorstep and try to convert us all the time, like on a weekly basis, and thought that she would get to heaven if she could convert the Jews. Wow. And then, and then growing up in that, did it feel, when you were in school and stuff, did it feel like you were an outcast and other? Horrible. I mean, and I felt like I had to be the other standing in for every other other because there were no blacks. There were no Hispanic. There was, there was nobody right. but Jews as the other. Yeah. No Asian Americans, no Latinos. No, we were it. We were the other. Yeah. And kids would say to me, what are you? What are you? You know that how they talk to the marginalized? What are you? <laughs> you're yeah. not right. You're not one of us. We don't know exactly what you are, but you're not one of us. Right. Yeah. And then with parents who are Bible banging, yeah, um, probably doesn't help either. Yeah, and and then my dad was so eccentric. I mean, so he dressed up for my tenth birthday party like little Lord Fauntleroy, which is the image that's on the cover of the book. I don't know. Oh, oh God, upside cool. down. See him like little velvet, little velvet shorts, yeah. and yeah. So he dressed up like that for my tenth birthday party. And all, you know, little girls from this Bible Belt community. And here's my dad, totally in character, like he's Shirley Temple slash I don't know who. It totally freaked them out. And I, I kind of thought it would be funny and they'd appreciate it. Totally freaked them out. He started, like, touching them and messing. You know, he was in character. He's a child. Uh-huh. And I never got invited to another birthday party. My whole childhood in love was so it's sad right yeah but if they i mean if they had not been like so intent on being normal in that neighborhood they might have appreciated that you know what i mean i mean like there was red skelton on tv dressing up like a little boy milton burl would dress up like a woman my father was only so abnormal because of where we were 
partly. I mean, he was crazy too, but it made it worse. If he was in more of a hip area of Los Angeles. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco. So if he was in San Francisco, he probably would have been the king of the, you know, the king of the community. Yeah. I mean, just other Jews. I mean, so my last year of high school, I transferred out from the high school in La Crescenta to a high school in the Valley. And there were other neurotic Jewish kids. And I felt totally at home. And was that kind of an eye opener for you to just go, oh, my God, I could have felt like this the whole time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was kind of like, what the, there was nothing really wrong with me. There was nothing really wrong with me. I was just in the wrong place. I don't know. You're like, I'm going to write a book about this one day. (laughs) I'm going to write a book about this. Yeah. How, how does that feel kind of looking back to your younger self and going, you know, all the pain you're going through and going, you know what, this will be material. I wish I could tell my 16 year old, (laughs) this will be material. Well, I was always writing. I mean, I started writing little stories when I was five. Oh, wow. I would dictate little stories. So I was always writing about this stuff. And then I had journals, years and years of journals. Uh-huh. So I always thought I would be a writer eventually. I always thought I would be a writer. So even when I'd be on the playground and the other kids were shunning me, I'd be writing little stories in my head about how screwed up they all were. What a great coping mechanism. And then it turns into a career. Um, when, when you started writing seriously, um, what, was there a point where you're like, oh, wait, I think I am a writer? Or was there a doubt where you're just like, oh, crap, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a writer. Maybe I better get out of this. Well, my, my material, I mean, other than making a living as a medical writer for years. So that was how I actually made a living as a writer, writing about disease which kind of came naturally to me. <laughs> which, is not, which is not a good career choice for you, Deborah. <laughs> I had the vocabulary. People will say to me, how did you become a medical writer? I had the vocabulary. I was fascinated. It was counterphobic behavior. I would watch surgery tapes. I worked for this medical media company. I loved it. I absolutely adored it. How you can watch a surgery happen? I would eat lunch and watch a surgery happen and be like, and I was happy. I'm having a small panic attack now. With just that it's so intriguing what we can go through when we have other panic disorder stuff. Right. It's just like, and then you can eat a sandwich and watch a surgery. Anyway, I'm sorry. But that's I, how I made a living as a writer. But then I was always writing about my own experience. But then I, I always felt like, well, I wish I could write a novel. Then I'd be a real writer, you know, writing, writing memoir, writing about my own experience. Maybe I'm not. Maybe that's not so real. Um, And then I started publishing. I didn't really start publishing stuff until I was in my 30s. So, and then I I realized, okay, maybe this is is it. Maybe, maybe I can do this. I I loved getting, I remember getting my first check for writing for a publication. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think it was like $25 for Mm -hmm. some movie review. And it was, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm a paid writer. And that $25, I was just like, this can be seven burritos if I go to the <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, I'm just like, I'm eating because this is my writer money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you feel like your childhood helped make you into a writer? <laughs> um, I don't think, I think I, I, it didn't help. I, as far as the Jehovah's Witnesses are cur- concerned, they smash the creativity out of you. And yeah, I was I don't like that either, huh? Yeah, and and so 
I was always kind of secretly creative and really craving creativity. And I didn't even really read a novel until I was in my twenties. And then huh. and that's when I was, uh, and that's when I was um, grieving the suicide of a friend of mine. And then, so I went to the library to try, cause I couldn't get any help in uh, with the elders. Cause they're like, you can't grieve him. He's shunned this fellowship dead to us already. And I was just, like, I'm suicidal too right now. I don't know what to do. So then I went to the mm. library, started reading psychology books, which drew me toward a novel. And the first novel I ever read was James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. I have no idea. Wow. I, I don't know why. Wow, that you started with something good. Yeah, and I read that and I was like, just the emotional attachment where I was just like, wait a second, this speaks to me. And it blew my mind. So, um, I forgot what your original question was, but child, the relationship between being a writer and your childhood. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I and it, I would never. It took me many years to even write about my childhood. It was very taboo to even discuss a Jehovah's Witness thing. Hmm. So uh, even after I left the belief system, it was still ingrained in me. Do not, do not, do, uh, whatever. Reproach the name of Jehovah's Witnesses. Really? Yeah. But um. I mean, it's, yeah, anyway, the, uh, but that, that's my story. We're here with your story. Well, and the, it, it's like those beliefs from childhood that are ingrained and kind of given to you in the name of love. It's so hard to get over them. I've really been thinking about, about that a lot. Because even now when I open a can, I'll have like a fleeting, I, maybe I should listen for the puff. You know, how do I know there's not botulism? And all the years of therapy and, and reason and everything, those beliefs that come to you as a child are so powerful. It's almost you still like believe the, some of that? I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's almost like a cellular thing. Like it's imprinted in your yeah. DNA. Like um, I think you're going to ask me if I still believe some of that Yeah, stuff. do you still believe any of it? Um, I think there's part of me that's always an identity crisis that's going to happen. Um, I, you know, cognitively, I don't. Um, in my heart, right. I don't. But I did have, I had a terrible nightmare the other night. My nightmares have been getting worse because of the pandemic we're in. Yeah. Terrible nightmare that someone broke into my house. And it was kind of, I think I was kind of waking up and going in and out of it. And they were pushing my face to the ground. Oh, to my bed. And oh, I went, oh, crap, this is demons. And then in my dream, I was like, okay, because the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are all about don't bring a demon into your house. Don't accept gifts from any Jehovah's Witness. So then I was like, in my dream, I was like, what did I bring into my house? Great. Now I have to deal with demons. And then I wake up and I'm like, that's, 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 that's ironic and stupid, but it's still in there somewhere. It's know? there. It's there. It's like it gets into your, like you said, on the cellular level. And yeah. And it's about kind of, I guess it's almost about driving into it, you know, during the day when we're not dreaming, just be like, okay, it's part of me. It's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to feel guilty about sex. Okay, I get it. You know, and it's just like in my relationships after I was married for years to a Jehovah's Witness, we were both Jehovah's Witnesses, and then I kind of left, but I was married forever. And then afterwards, I just learned in my relationships, just be very open about what I'm feeling with, with mm -hmm. because sometimes it's not easy for me. And, you know, it's anyway. You still, all that stuff hangs around. It just does, it just hangs around. But then we get to write books about it. And I, I know. It's gratitude. It's like, what? 
we get to be authors? Right, and you do process, I mean, some of it while you're writing. Not, not that a good memoir should just be therapy, because I think there's a big difference between an artful memoir and therapy. But you do get to process, and you do get little revelations along the way, and you do understand in a different way than you understood while you were going through it, for sure. Yeah, and then, and then to get the validation where a publisher takes you on and publishes it, yeah. just right there you're going, wait a second, somebody, in the, somebody who holds the key is actually going to do this? And it's even before, for me, it was like even before thinking about a reading audience, I was just like, mm-hmm. wait, there's an editor that wants to work with me and give me money at the same <laughs> yeah, right. time? It doesn't get better than this. Uh-huh. It, there's, a, there's just a real... Um, it's almost like an acknowledging of, wait, okay, this, this happened and there's people out there that can uh, identify with it. Well, totally, I totally related to your movie, even though it's so different in many ways from my experience. I totally got like the fear and the confusion and the powerful dad and how do you fight the powerful dad. And When, when you know. Paul Edelstein plays the dad, when he showed up on set in wardrobe with his hairdo like that, mm-hmm. And uh, our director, Eric Stoltz, that was his dad, his father's uh, glasses. When he showed up on set, he scared the shit out of me because mm-hmm. exactly like my dad in the 1980s. <laughs> freaked me out. I'm like, how did you conjure this? Because it could, they could, I, if I could find photos from my dad as a Jehovah's Witness in like 1985, mm-hmm. Paul, Adelstein, Paul Adelstein in that movie. I'd be like, oh, those guys are brothers. They might be twins. <laughs> wow. I always wanted Philip Seymour Hoffman to play my dad. Oh, that would have been. I always thought he, you know, like we drew him up and he could do it. But, yeah, but, um, yeah unfortunately, do, he's uh, not around. I, so, yeah, so you do have, but I, I had a movie in mind, too, when, I was, when my book was cut. Well, you know, I had the movie in my head even though the movie came out very differently. Yeah. And I'm glad it did because the movie in my head probably wasn't as good as the movie that came out. But um, I don't know if you had the same thing with that. Uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've, I mean, I see the scenes because there's a lot of very detailed scenes. And my dad was such a character. It would just be an actor's dream. Um, I mean, he was probably bipolar but not diagnosed. So he had these extreme emotional states, which are always fun for an actor. Yeah. And when he was funny, he was really, really fun. I mean, he was just outrageous. There's one scene in the book where we're in a Las Vegas hotel, and we've just had this huge breakfast, and he decides he wants to do it again, have another breakfast. So um, the waitress comes and says, can I get you anything else? And he goes, you know what they say at the blackjack table, hit me again. And, he, and, and then he um, said, don't you want to do it with me? And, and none, my brothers wouldn't do it. My mother wouldn't do it. I had a whole other meal with him. We had two meals in a row. Huh. Table while my mother scowled. I could see that movie scene so well. You're right. <laughs> it needs to be a movie. Yeah, is there a, is it, is it optioned or our? No, not the, no, no, it's available. It's available. Yeah, good. It's very available. Good. Yeah, it's, no, it's, 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 yeah. Um, I advise don't adapt your own screenplay if you want to, if you don't want to have a nervous breakdown. At the same time, it's so much fun developing your own screenplay and just having a nervous breakdown on top of it. Is that you did your own, huh? Yeah, you yeah. Did it yourself, yeah. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, well, with uh, with with Stoltz, he was so great. He was amazing. He's been amazing through the whole process. Of he just really wanted to keep the voice in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just forever grateful to him because he was such a champion on how how everything how the story was told. And, well, and I like that it ended kind of ambiguously. Like you weren't all the way out. It was clear you weren't all the way out. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the. Um, yeah, there was a. That was one of the back and forth we had on how the movie should end, and I was just like, "No, no, no! You cut to black. Cut to black. Cut to black." <laughs> I did shoot a couple things after that that I didn't agree with, and they weren't in the script. And I was like, "No, no, no!" And that, and they were just like, "Let's just get the coverage in case we need it." And I was just like, "Oh no!" And then when they sent me the rough cut, and I watched it for the first time. And it was get, we were getting to that scene, and I was like screaming in my office. I was like, "Cut to black! Cut to black!" <laughs> and then like, "Cut to black!" And I went, and it said, "Directed by Eric Stoltz." And I said, "Yeah!" Because <laughs> you don't want to have this like fake happy ending. Yeah, yeah. Even though people want it, they just they want it. They want redemption at the end of a memoir. They want to believe like if, if like if it's a memoir about addiction that you're sober at the end and everything is cool and yeah i mean you're not all the way out you get a little bit out right and then so it sounds like you were in through a a period of time following the end of the movie for sure oh yeah yeah and uh uh, as far as creating the uh the character of the movie he's so much cooler than i ever was and he was so much more uh experimenting than i ever was so that like that one year was more like 10 years for me i compressed. see compressed yeah so thank, yeah thank yeah. god we have artistic license so we can seem really cool <laughs> yes yes yeah 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 so i kind of get out in my book um i'm there the night that robert f kennedy is assassinated so i was a youth volunteer in his campaign so if two things saved me it was probably sex and politics because getting, <laughs> getting into the world and seeing, you know, it's not all about you and it's not all about your family um, and kind of falling in love with Robert F. Kennedy. But then being there at the ambassador the night he died kind of brought me to this whole reckoning of you got you to gotta learn another way to handle grief and loss than the way your father taught you. Yeah. You're not going to survive. Yeah. And, yeah. and what, was, what was one of the tools that you learned that, kind of has carried you to reach out to other people to to let your grief open you up to other people and empathy because it does i mean it just strips you there and you can feel for other people and try to stay engaged in the world at large i think empathy is everything i think if i think if we're empathetic and then we reach out and Mm -hmm. other people are empathetic to us it's 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 a beautiful contagious thing that yeah, for sure. When I when I had extreme panic attacks, where I where I couldn't leave the house for about three or four years, um, I would have to like I would walk to the store a block away and feel like I was going to die. And one of the early coping mechanisms I did, and this is in the middle of San Francisco, yeah. um, I what I would do is when I was having a panic attack, I would just turn to whoever was next to me and go, "I'm having a panic attack." Uh-huh. And most of the time they'd be like, just ignore me. And sometimes they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'd be like, thank you. But it was, I needed to, that just get, just saying it out loud brought the yeah. people of it down. Yeah. It blew my mind. 
to just have like like some kind of communion with another person about it and not be ashamed just go, yeah yeah. Oh my God! And when I was getting divorced, uh, you know, sale uh, clerks at the grocery store, I'd be like, "How are you?" And I'd be like, "Oh, I'm devastated. I'm going through a divorce." <laughs> they look at me like, "Yeah, I'm just what, doing well." Here. A lot of information. A lot of information. One in twenty would be like, "Oh my God, I've been through a divorce too. I know exactly what you're going through." And those, it, just knowing that, knowing that there were other, that we had that there were others out there that. Had yeah. Well, and I say to my writing students, follow the shame. Yeah. Follow the shame. That's what you need to write about. If you're ashamed to write about it, that's what you need to write about. That is so true. Yeah. yeah. When, yeah. When, they go, when people say, oh, my God, I can't write about that, it, that's when you go, nope, you got to. Yeah. No, I give one, one prompt to my student, write the story you can't write. Yeah. Write the story you can't write. Cause, I mean, because there's a lot of taboos that you violate in writing a memoir. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm sure, yeah, I mean, you're saying you weren't even supposed to write at all about being a Jehovah's Witness and what that was like. And, yeah, and families, it's like family secrets, right? Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of shame growing up. Whenever anybody would come to the door, we'd be like, oh, my God, is Daddy dressed? Oh my God, has daddy shaved lately? Because it might be, so we, he, my parents ran an insurance agency out of our house. Oh wow. So we would be afraid it would be a representative from one of the companies. And they would see him in his underwear, like having taken too many sleeping pills the night before and not looking like he should be looking. And we'd be like scrambling to dress him and stalling. And there'd be like waves of shame. Who's going to find out what really goes on in this family? And it's so fun to dig into the shame and to just put it out there because then we realize the shame is so much less than we were making it. That's what I realized. And when people get, you know, when I, I, because I teach writing as well, and I've had Mm -hmm. students where they're just like, I can't go here. And I'm like, you got to go there. And then when you get the, you know, the courage to kind of workshop what they wrote and they're blown away that everyone connects to it because everyone connects yeah they're thinking everyone's going to be like oh my god you gotta be kidding me you're a fucking weirdo and it's just like no everyone's just like i get this and you know what this blank blank happened to me where it's just like yeah crazier and there's a beauty to that that's the human thing we can do yeah the more bizarre you think it is the more other people will relate sometimes yeah and you have to write it it's so crazy um yeah um my girlfriend's a uh she's a young adult author so it's it's funny because she's like i can't write this i was like oh that means you have to and she's like i know (laughs) (laughs) it's just like crap i why did this have to be why did this thought come up why am i ashamed yeah yeah and shame is so crippling if you don't confront it yeah. Don't talk about it with anyone else. Yeah. It just, it's just so destructive. Yeah. That's, I, that's why I just, I mean, that's why I, uh, it's so much fun just being in the weirdo writers club because it's, I feel like this is the only club that I, I can actually feel okay in because it's just like, wait, we all have, we all are weird and we're just going to talk yes. about it. We're going to be so open about it that none of us care. And it's just, there's a beauty. I mean, we care if you, we're caring about the craft. You know, it's just like, oh, okay. right. How do I take this really screwed up childhood and write a beautiful book about it? How do I do that? Right. 
because I want the language to be beautiful. You know, whatever was going on, I want the language to be beautiful. I want the scenes to connect. I want, the yeah. sound, uh, you know, things to, yeah. And I now, want people to get it. I want them to get who my parents were. You know, I want to bring them back. Yeah. And it is kind of almost a resurrection of sorts when you're. Yeah, for sure. Those that have died. Yeah. Yeah, it's, for sure. And they're back every night in my dreams now. I mean, I, I dream about both parents almost every My mother won't feed me. That's my recurring dream about my mother. Yeah. Won't feed me, which, you know, that's not too complicated to figure out what that was about. Mm-hmm. And my father is just nuts, wandering around nuts. Wow. Now, is that, did you have those dreams as you were writing the book or was it more afterwards where it was just, just kind of a, as it was getting toward publishing? Um, I think I had them while I was writing and then I started having them again as the book has become more public. Yeah. And you got to keep talking about the book now. I got to keep talking. I got to keep reading from it. It's like, what was I thinking? I don't know if you've ever had that. What was I thinking moment? Other people are actually going to read this. Yeah. I, I have, I've had that a lot. But the response has been good. I mean, people are, they're getting it. And then you feel like, wow, I'm, I've been gotten, I've been seen. There's something that's got to be one of the most fulfilling um, endeavors to just work so hard on a book, to to work so hard through our own trying to grow as a person, and especially yeah. putting your guts out there. Yeah. And when someone else sees it and acknowledges it, it's just like I that might be better than sex. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm having yeah. the wrong sex. Am I having <laughs> the wrong sex? You have less guilt about it. <laughs> That's, that's <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the thank show. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. It's so nice to meet you. Deborah Lott on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Don't Go Crazy Without Me, a tragic comic memoir that's out now on Red Hen Press. Hey, thanks for listening, and tune in next week when our guest is Billy Van Zant. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne, and this has been a production of sorts. Have a good week.